Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome Dr. Jenna Forsyth, postdoctoral fellow with the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Her research brings together principles of environmental science, epidemiology, and behavior change. Her most recent research on lead contamination in food brought her to Bangladesh, and we will be asking her about that today. Hey, Jenna, welcome to the SASPOD. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Looking forward to this. Me too. I, I'm excited about the conversation that we're going to have. Can you just kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background and your general research interests? Absolutely. Yes. As you mentioned, I am a postdoc at uh, the Woods Institute at Stanford right now. And I've always been interested in public health and environmental science issues. So I actually have a bachelor's degree in biology, and then I went on to do my master's in environmental engineering with a certificate in global health from the University of Washington. And it was during my master's research where I began to focus on these environmental health issues. So I was focused at that time on water and wastewater treatment. So especially looking into technologies that would be appropriate for low and middle income country contexts. At that time, I was conducting research in East Africa, and I was also working with an NGO and another company based out of Seattle. I, I really liked this real world applicability. Right. After a couple of years, I just started to yearn to go back, uh, yearn for this opportunity to go back and uh, conduct um, research abroad again. And I decided I wanted to get my PhD. So mm -hmm. I settled on Stanford, mm -hmm. knowing a lot about Dr. Steve Luby. And you know he's here at Stanford at the Woods Institute, also the School of Medicine. Um, he has done a lot of research on water and sanitation issues in Bangladesh. So naturally I came to Stanford thinking, okay, I'll continue on this trajectory, probably working on some sort of water and sanitation research project in Bangladesh. I had some good ideas of what that might be, mm -hmm. but of course things don't go exactly mm -hmm. planned. <laughs> so it was during my first year at Stanford, Steve presented me with this data. It was um, exciting to me because it was a puzzle. He basically had this data of a cohort of women in um, Bangladesh that, that were in rural Bangladesh, like ag mm -hmm. ag agrarian kind of communities, non-industrial, no known, so sorry, no known, known sources of lead. Mm -hmm. And yet they had relatively high levels of lead in their blood. So this was this puzzle. I immediately immersed myself into this. It was kind of like, this was 2015. Um, and literally the rest is history. Like my entire dissertation revolved around this topic. Um, I went to Bangladesh that summer in 2015, um, visited the households of these women, tried to kind of go along this anthropological route. We were trying to figure out, you know, what was the source of lead in this community? And um, ultimately, after <laughs> several years of, of study, we found that lead chromate 
you know, a yellow pigment used in industrial paints and textiles uh -huh. um, was actually being added to turmeric and that unfortunately these women were eating it and this was the primary contributor to the lead exposure in this area. So wow, it was, okay. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was surprising. I mean, we, we had all sorts of hypotheses. We were thinking, you know, it's agrochemicals. There's like lead arsenate, you know, you might've heard about that in the apple orchards in Washington state in the US. Um, so it wasn't our primary hypothesis that it was gonna be something, literally a pigment that should not be consumed, but being added to the turmeric. So yeah, we, we focused in on that and kind of since um, we published our findings on that in 2019, we've really worked on, towards some solution and we're seeing a lot of progress. So kind of five years after that initial study, we're seeing um, drops in the lead lead concentration. In I, I feel that, I mean, now that we know the, the answer, um, it, it, it's no longer a good movie, but I mean, it would made a really good movie. And I mean, it's like, what a big kind of reveal at the end. Now, um, I'm personally not a big fan of the um, chai turmeric latte that's so popular, <laughs> especially in the Bay Area. Uh, but do people have to worry about turmeric or is, has it been globally resolved thanks to you? <laughs> well, <laughs> Right. It's one of those funny things where, yeah, in, um, I don't know, I think, you know, the New York, I think it's the New York Times that kind of puts out the hot, healthy, trendy foods for the year. Uh -huh. I believe it was right about when we were going to publish. I think it was 2019 when we published. They they said, you know, kale's out this year. It's turmeric. Turmeric's in the turmeric. Mm. So, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of one of these funny things, you know, with celebrities turning to turmeric because of all these health benefits and that knowing there was this kind of underlying problem with um, potential, you know, a, a potent neurotoxin potentially being being in it. But it turns out that, you know, if you're purchasing turmeric that is um, not in loose form, so like not the loose powder, if you're at a bazaar um, abroad, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, avoiding the loose powder would be a good idea and going for either roots that appear not bright yellow, so like they're not extremely polished or just going for some packaged turmeric of a brand that's reputable enough to be exporting. Because basically since between 2011, uh, sorry, 2011 and 2017, there were a number of recalls of Indian and Bangladeshi turmeric from companies, including companies based out of Bangladesh that were exporting. So the good news is the export market seems to be pretty well controlled now from a food safety standpoint, but unfortunately, um, within countries, especially in South Asia, this is something to to be aware of. Yeah, because I mean, most people I know in South Asia who use turmeric don't grind it themselves. I'm not even sure that I've ever seen that. Um, I also don't know. I don't know how people purchase it because I guess you do go to the bazaar and just buy it in bulk and then store it at home. And so that continues to be a bad idea. I feel this should be more known. This is a big thing. Right. I think, yeah, if you want to be really cautious trying to buy um, either the roots or having it ground in front of you, or again, opting for packaged turmeric right. would probably right. be, packaged turmeric would be the easiest, safest bet. Cause you're right. Who, who's grinding it? You know, um, some women we spoke to in rural Bangladesh, they said, oh, you know, what we could do is we could buy the roots and kind of have a collectively like within our compound or within our, with our neighbors going on some roots and have, have them ground. Um, but yeah, it's not an option in all areas. So packaged turmeric, if you have the resources, is, is, is very safe. And um, otherwise, we're working on it. So we're exploring this in other, in other countries and hopefully... Glad to, glad to hear it. I'm also thinking that... Um, that um, 
to try and keep um keep things safer it just adds more labor to women's right work, right it just yeah it, it yeah it shouldn't be the the role of the consumer to do that food safety but unfortunately you know um yeah the the food safety monitoring can be spotty so yeah sure. it, it's unfortunate um, staying on the topic of lead, you are the, the lead author of a recent article on lead acid battery recycling, also in Bangladesh. So um, can you tell us more about that research? And, and presumably it came out of the turmeric research, but tell us. Sure. Yeah. So I can kind of tell you the origins first and then, then dig into it a bit more. Basically, I think it was during one of my field visits in Bangladesh, I met um, someone from an NGO named Pure Earth. And this is an international NGO. They focus a lot on reducing pollution, especially lead pollution. They had been collaborating with uh, another partner in uh, Dhaka University, the Department of Geology. And they, they know they, they had identified a contaminated site and wanted to work with us to do some research around it to measure the success of remediation in terms of drops in blood lead levels. So that's kind of how that came about. And to tell you more about the issue first, um, lead acid battery recycling is a predominant source of uh, lead exposure worldwide. So you know, 80% of lead globally is tied up in the battery industry, you know, especially with the rise in motor vehicles, even mm -hmm. small electric vehicles, we're seeing, you know, increased demand for lead acid batteries. But unfortunately, it's really, really easy to uh, break open a lead acid battery, extract the lead by smelting it in an open pit, and then earn profit from reselling those lead ingots. So it's a really rudimentary form of smelting. And unfortunately, it's extremely polluting. So wow. it re results in high levels of lead contamination in the air and the surrounding soil. You know, of course, the workers who are doing the smelting are most likely to suffer, but also children who live nearby because, you know, I, we all know that children play in the soil and put their hands in their mouth and that's a, a dominant route of exposure for them. So in Bangladesh, it's estimated that anywhere between um, 300 and 1000 informal battery recycling sites are, exist. But of course, this number fluctuates. Um, Part of that is because uh, lead acid battery recycling is technically informal and illegal. Um, and it often becomes these small scale backyard operations and mm -hmm. they frequently get shut down, whether it's because of um, governmental um, intervention or in the case of this site that we were studying, it was actually the villagers had noticed that um, their cattle were uh, mysteriously falling ill uh -huh. and you know there are other the animals they were raising and um, some of them died and the villagers were really concerned you know they obviously didn't know that the black smoke coming from the smelting pits was um, lead they right. don't you know, know that term but they obviously they didn't feel good you know anecdotally they were concerned right. that this pollution was affecting them and then seeing their animals mysteriously fall ill so wow. they actually put together kind of they put a lot of pressure on the village leader and um they, they pretty much drove these informal recyclers out and unfortunately that leaves behind a wake of contamination so you have high levels of lead in the soil that just don't go away mm. even if there's no more lead pollution in the air that's being generated so uh. um is the battery the problem or the recycling? What's what's the issue? And then also you said 
that the rise in electric vehicles means there are more lead acid batteries. Did I hear that correct? This is <laughs> this is not where we want to go in our in, in our eco consciousness. So can you unpack both of those for me? Sure. So um well, the fact that the battery uses lead and that the lead is easily accessible, like again, a lithium ion battery isn't something you can easily break open and extract the lithium if, right. if you know if, if you wanted to. Um, but a lead acid battery is pretty simple in, in a sense. You know, it's got the acid, it's it's got the lead plates, and it's something that you can, without a lot of training, without a lot of expertise, you can break it open and, right. and the lead is just so valuable. So right. it's literally the process of breaking it open does release some, um, it does cause some contamination, both the acid, the sulfuric acid, um, but also the lead, but then it's really this process of smelting right. without any sort of air filters or without any sort of controls that you'd have at a formal lead recycling site. Right. Um, um, that that's really the, the biggest concern there. And then I think in terms of this rise in vehicles, there's um, obviously this trade-off, right? Like in Bangladesh, you have more kind of three-wheelers and small kind of mini, mini trucks that serve as transportation for a lot of people, um, a taxi of sorts. You know, people right. can pile on and um, even if they're electric vehicles and, uh, um, well, right now they're running on lead acid batteries. So there's some question is if you, if we transition to more lithium ion batteries, will the problem go away? And I think, you know, um, maybe a little bit, but probably there will still be some demand for lead acid batteries. And then of course the question is how do we recycle the lithium ion batteries? So there's a lot to think about there for sure. Um, and it's, it's a pretty complex problem. Yeah, and, it, and clearly, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, and in this case, it's not even an active site, right? Like I mentioned, it had been an abandoned site. So, I mean, then the problem is when you have these sites that get abandoned, the, the lead doesn't really disappear. It doesn't like biodegrade on its own. Um, it stays in the soil and it continues to pose an exposure risk. So um, Pure Earth, this nonprofit I mentioned, has done a lot of work on soil remediation. So they wanted to do this soil remediation and this was conducted between 2017 and 2019. And you know, we wanted to measure the success of this, but also our aims were to assess the intensity and uh, nature of, of exposure. So we did some things like we did some interviews and some observations with the people living nearby. And then we also measured um, child blood lead levels before and after. And we did see that you know, we were able to reduce the lead in the soil that caused a reduction in lead in children's blood, all really good. But of course, unfortunately, the the child blood lead levels were still a bit higher than, um, well, higher than you'd want, I should say, because there's no safe level of lead. Right, <laughs> right. The US Centers for Disease Control has set kind of this five micrograms per deciliter as the amount of lead in a child's blood that above which would merit some sort of intervention. Unfortunately, the children's um, blood lead levels remained above that five mm -hmm. micrograms per deciliter even after remediation. So part of our conclusion there was A, the remediation was very successful, reduced child blood lead levels, any reduction ex in exposure is important, but there's probably still some other sources of lead. So, you know, at that time probably brings back to, you know, the lead chromate and the turmeric or other sources of lead that might've continued to cause a problem. Um, is there anything specific about 
Bangladesh that that and I want to ask you a little bit about the global in uh, the global um, ramifications of what we're talking about. But um, I want to ask you first about Bangladesh. If there's anything yeah. you've you've uh, alluded to a few things, but um, do you feel that your work can be uh, reproduced elsewhere, or is it really something very specific to Bangladesh in certain ways? Yeah, I think unfortunately the these problems are, are common in, in many countries. Let us said battery recycling is definitely a, a global issue as well. Um, so although there are specific reasons and you know, I, I was working in Bangladesh and Bangladesh does seem to have a higher lead burden than you know, some countries, but definitely the problem of lead acid battery recycling isn't restricted there. Hmm. And um lead is a toxin you were just talking about the the, the quote-unquote safe level which really doesn't exist right it's supposed to be zero um, um so your your article talks about lead as a quote-unquote super villain um as a as a mom and somebody who spent a lot of time in south asia i i know that lead is one of the most damaging and ir irreversible of toxins so how does that how does that play out in other parts of the world including the united states but not only the united states the the um the exposure that appears to happen quite randomly and the irre irreversibility of it yeah so let me just tell you a, a little bit about lead i'll sure. kind of break it down a little bit but so yeah lead, as you mentioned lead is a, a neurotoxin it irreversibly damages the brain and studies have shown that it permanently lowers IQ and reduces lifetime earnings. You know, um, during the 20th century, leaded gasoline was the dominant source of lead exposure worldwide. And right. it actually wasn't until lead was phased out of gasoline in the 1970s to 2000s that um, blood lead levels were reduced, be, being reduced enough that we could study kind of like, what is the effect of lower levels of lead exposure? And basically every time lead exposure is reduced, we find that any amount of lead is, is bad. There's no physiological purpose for lead. And um, that, you know, it was kind of this natural experiment that um, once blood lead levels had um, decreased, that uh, made it possible to say that even lower levels of lead are, are also um, affecting IQ. So there was a study of over a thousand children um, conducted again after lead was phased out of gasoline in seven different countries. And it showed that um, basically each, um, like between um, uh, under 10 micrograms per deciliter of lead in the blood um, still caused a, um, a reduction in IQ. So each IQ point is expected to lower worker productivity. And then globally, they've extrapolated and kind of estimated what this means for lost productivity from child lead exposure. And they estimate that it's up to a trillion dollars um, is kind of lost because of lead exposure per year. And in Bangladesh alone, this translates to roughly 6% um, of GDP or about $16 billion. So they, there are these kind of large ramifications for, for this. And, um, I think um, part of it is that, um, well, I guess you you, went, you mentioned about um, how does this compare to the, the US and, and other places? And right. I guess one thing I should have said is that, so there were a number of studies conducted in Bangladesh and they found that um, since um, 
after 1999, when lead was phased out of gasoline in Bangladesh, that um, even studies conducted after that time found that 50 to 90% of the children had elevated blood lead levels. And this is compared to like 3% in the US. So, and even in Flint, we all know about Flint, Michigan, um, the incidence of elevated blood lead levels increased from 2.9% to 4.9% when that water source changed and there was lead in the water. So obviously we're seeing much higher exposure in, in places like Bangladesh. Right. Um, you, you put it in a metric of um, IQ points dropping and that translating into GDP earnings. Um, right. So the kind of capitalist reading of that, does it, how does it affect people themselves um, in terms of um, disease and uh, longevity and also just, I don't know, Derek, say just happiness? Like, does it, does it matter? Yeah, I mean... It's such a good question because yeah, I think it's easy to kind of extrapolate those numbers on a large scale and think, not think about what it means. Um, it can be tricky at certain levels of lead exposure to attribute, you know, your symptoms to lead, but certainly there's no biological purpose for lead in the body and any amount causes damage to pretty much every system. Right. So circulatory system, um, you know, cardiovascular issues, hypertension, endocrine system, hormonal imbalances, things of that nature. Um, oh, and of yeah. course, the, the nervous system is, is the one that people focus a lot on. Right. Um, yeah, okay. So for lots of different reasons, you really don't want to go anywhere near it is, is the conclusion. It, it's definitely something that, yeah, like, you know, it let us this, I don't know if we want to get into the, the chemistry for a minute or not, but basically it's this, what called a divalent cation. And, it, you know, it has a plus two charge. It competes with really important, um, things that are used for neuron signaling, for example, calcium, and it's so competitive, it outcompetes calcium in, in, in your body. Oh, so it um, also, it'll, it also um, uh, neutralizes or gets rid of the benefits of things that you do want. Yeah, which is why, in fact, and when you mentioned if there are peculiarities with, with Bangladesh or certain regions of the world, unfortunately, if you have certain uh, nutritional or nutrient deficiencies, especially if you're deficient in calcium, iron, or zinc, um, that causes more problem. It actually can mean more lead absorption. Right. Um, but it also um, people with more lead in their bodies are actually more likely to become um, iron deficient right. um, because lead hinders heme production and blood cell function. So yeah, it's kind of this awful cycle of, you know, it, it perpetuates lead poisoning and also perpetuates problems of poor nutrition. Because that's already... Um... Low iron is already such an issue for children in South Asia, right? Right. Um, now, we, we talked about turmeric and, and possibly safe ways of using it. Uh, we do have a global audience. So are there other things that, um, that we can be mindful of when it comes to lead pollution? How, how can we just be safer? Right. It's such a great question. And it's especially kind of frustrating because there's no treatment for lead. Right. Place. There's no effective treatment really. And so, um, yeah, definitely our best uh, strategy is to minimize exposure. So um, there are some pretty good resources. So the CDC and also the New York City Department of Health have put out kind of some information about a number of common sources of lead that can be looked out for. And 
again, it definitely depends on where you're based globally. You know, if you're in Mexico, lead glazed pottery continues to be a concern. Mm. But of course, in South Asia, like I mentioned, maybe more of the spices is something or cultural powders, um, Ayurvedic medicines, um, the surma, the coal, kajal, yeah. the different names for it, things like, of that nature can have high lead. Mm. Um, so it does depend where you are uh, uh, geographically and thinking about that, I think it is worthwhile. And then of course, um, since prenatal and um, early childhood exposure is kind of most concerning because of that effect on brain development and you know, right. young children's brains are developing so rapidly. So you know, if you have, um, young children, you could just get their blood level tested if you're at all concerned mm -hmm. and take a look at, look out for that. Right. Um, yeah, Defe definitely, uh, it, it's, it's, it's worth requesting that type of test too, because unfortunately those things aren't routine in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, my son is 14, so I, I'm sure I've forgotten many, many things around pregnancy, but I remember there was a, you know, there was a lot of talk around peanuts, um, but <laughs> maybe they should have told us more about lead. I don't remember that. I mean, they might have asked a few questions, but I feel that this, you know, from what I'm hearing you say, this is actually a much bigger problem than, than people are willing to discuss. And I, I think in the, uh, in the quote-unquote developed world, and I'm talking about England and the United States just because of places that I've lived with a child and not putting a value judgment on what developed means. Uh, this is common terminology, not mine. Um, I think lead is seen as, as a thing of the past, but also a thing of other countries. Right. Um, and uh, it probably has become a marker of development uh, that lead is not no longer existing in the environment. Would you, would you say that's fair? Right, right. And I guess, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because we can also look at these aggregate statistics, you know, 3% of children in the U.S. with elevated blood lead levels, like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But there are still, you know, lead in paint in old, in old housing is still a concern in this area. And... Um, in some areas, again, uh, lead soldered pipes or things of that nature. So it's funny too, because my daughter is now two years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, during one of her early pediatric visits, the pediatrician did ask, um, would you like a blood lead level? Or I think she actually phrased it. Do you live in housing older than mm -hmm. a certain year? And um, I said, no. And so she, she, so she said, okay, we probably don't need to do a blood lead level test. But yeah, I think, I think it's worth noting that um, it's just worth thinking about these these other sources. Maybe if you had been living abroad or living in a, in a place with poor regulations and certain and products, um, it, it's uh, yeah. definitely worth considering. Yeah, definitely. Uh, super yeah. interesting. Now uh, we are in COVID times. I um, I always tell myself that I'm not really going to talk about COVID, but uh, it's impossible not to because uh, even a year into um, the the kind of uh, lockdown, shelter in place, uh, re restrictions, uh, it's still so like it, it feels it feels like it still changes every day, um, how we think about health and what we know about um, COVID also with the new variants and resistance and everything. So um, as someone who works in health, how has your thinking around disease, but also the environments uh, and, and government's reg regulations, how's that been impacted by COVID, assuming it has? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think 
COVID has highlighted just the magnitude of global health inequities. So like, like you said, j- even just now, just saying, you know, lead seems like an issue um, of the past in many places. And it's just heartbreaking to, to know that it's something that we can address, we can prevent exposure. And, um, and yet you're right, like it hasn't been adequately uh, the resources haven't been applied in places that where it's needed. And so I think, you know, with COVID, I just think about, you know, on the one hand, it highlights the interconnectedness of our world, you know, like the virus hopped so rapidly between countries. Yeah. But then when we look at the impact and kind of the different outcomes of a person, a high risk person living in one, you know, high income country versus a low income country, or even now, as we think about vaccine, um, you know, just how quickly um, and effectively vaccines can be rolled out in certain small, wealthy countries and how many years it will take um, in other places. I think, I think that's really uh, some of the takeaways for me, this, you know, inequity and um, kind of environmental health issues have always had a pretty strong justice angle. So, you know, lower income countries, uh, sorry, lower income neighborhoods in the U.S. have continued to suffer from lead poisoning, um, whereas, you know, again, partly to do, due to this older, older housing stock. Um, but you know, it, it, like, what kind of setting you're born into does matter for all, all of these, and and how, um, you know, what the trajectory will be. So, I think another thing is, you know, phasing out lead and gasoline was considered one of the greatest environmental health measures of the 20th century. It had these broad ranging impacts on people of all socioeconomic statuses. But as we move now to these maybe quote unquote smaller or decentralized kind of um, heterogeneous sources of lead, you know, now we, they they aren't maybe a global threat, um, but now it's like really this continued uh, perseverance to make sure we address them in places where the resources aren't available. I think I'm really glad you bring that up, that it's not... um it's not a, uh, the, the differences in regulation and exposure um, are not just between nations, um, it's, uh, or even between regions, it, it can be as small as neighborhoods, uh, and definitely very much still happening in the United States as well. I think it's super important for us to remember that because we can also, we can forget that uh, these levels of inequity are not just um, uh, from places that we can think of as being somewhere else. Uh, somewhere else can be very, very close to where we are. So thank you for reminding us of that. And um, on that note, I'm going to wrap it up. It's been really fantastic talking to you. I learned so much. I'm sure our audience feels the same. Thank you for making time for us. Thanks so much. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, really, really great to talk with great you. Great talking to you. I also want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro and Simbrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.